From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. In episode 48, we feature La Renaissance by Philippe Auclair, first published in issue 14 in September 2014. Issue 14, like all issues of the Blizzard, is available on a pay-what-you-like basis at theblizzard.co.uk. You can download digital editions for as little as a penny apiece, while print editions start at just £6 plus postage and packing. Don't forget that subscription options are available, and you can also find us on the Kindle and Google Play stores. Ahead of our Q&A event at Dublin Sugar Club earlier this year, I spoke to Philippe in a rather crowded hotel bar to get some wider perspectives on some of the issues he touches upon in the article. You say in the piece that the blame for the kidnapping has fallen on uh, Coba, who were protesting at the Argentina's hosting of the 1978 World Cup. Mm-hmm. Is it as entirely bizarre as it sounds to have an attempted kidnapping of a national team manager 24 hours before they're due to get on Concord? Uh, yes, it is. And I think it's it's also... What is also crazy is the um, amateur way in which it was done, even though it was absolutely frightening for, for Hidalgo and his wife. Um, but the fact that Michel Hidalgo... I mean, I don't know if people have in mind what kind of, of a man he is. He was at the time already in his 50s. He's not particularly tall... Um, he's a very almost demure kind of man, but he still managed to wrestle the weapon out of the, <laughs> the hands of his aggressor and, and make them flee. So, um, which is why at the time some people thought, no, no, it's, it's a put on. I mean, this never happened, but yes, it did. I mean, there was huge um, uh, antagonism towards part of, of the football establishment in France 78 before the World Cup. Um, perhaps it's worth remembering that you know these were times which were far more politicized in France. Certainly, you're talking about post '68 generation. Uh, there's been uh, the trouble in Chile, of course. Um, France has always had a very, very close relationship, particularly the left wing, with what was happening in Latin America, identifying with what was happening there. It's uh, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo and so forth. So Argentina has come to embody really the evil right-wing dictatorship. So people are a bit annoyed, especially that supposedly left-wing figures such as Michel Hidalgo are quite happy to go and represent France and doing so give some justification to an evil regime. So yes, that it does make complete sense, even if it sounds completely crazy. And what is even crazier, we, everybody seems to have forgotten about it in France. But you know, we've got a tradition about kidnapping. Because in May 68, there was, a, there was another kidnapping. Yeah. Um, uh, this time it was the, um, uh, or rather, uh, ho- hostage taking, which is when the uh, headquarters of the French FA were stormed by some uh, activists, left-wing activists, who actually detained... Um, the panchendrums of the federation uh, for for several days, which you've also written about in yeah, the Blizzard. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems to be a great tradition in French football. Of uh, I, I, we're missing this, I have to say, at the moment. <laughs> but it's all it's all true. It's all absolutely true, and uh, also gives you an idea that even if football is not part of the social fabric in France, as it is, say, in England, in Scotland, or, or in Spain or Italy. Um, it is. It has a very, very strong role to play, particularly in left-wing politics, because it is the proletarian sport. That's why. 
Don't forget one of our main papers was communist. True, true. Um, would you say that the kidnapping was more or less bizarre than the sight of France running out in green and white hooped shirts <laughs> that they'd borrowed from a local under-19 side because the kit well, man had made a mistake in the match against Hungary in the 78 World Cup? Yeah, and I have to say nobody understood what was going on at the time. So I would say, okay, probably the latter was the more bizarre of the two. But absolutely nobody knew what was going on. Um, I'm not sure that some of the players, actually, who were there still still know exactly what happened. But again, this is absolutely true. I mean, it's quite miraculous when you think about it that this tournament, uh, which was such a mess in so many ways, turned out to be the tournament of a renaissance of French football because... That's what it was, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, France had missed out on every tournament since uh, the World Cup in England in 1966, up until this point. Was Hidalgo responsible for this renaissance, or was it just the arrival of this new generation of players like Rocheteau, Trezor, Platini? Uh, Was was it Hidalgo himself and anything that he engendered, or or was it just the players who happened to be coming um, I think it was... Um, it, it, there were people who uh, should be should be sharing in the um, in the gratitude that we have towards Michel Hidalgo, whom everybody knew was not exactly a master tactician. He was more of a um, uh, a gentle father for this group of exceptionally gifted players. But you've got to go be, before that. You've got to go to Stefan Kovac and Georges Boulogne, people who arrived in what we call the the years of lead or the leaden years so between 66 and and I would say the mid 70s where we had decent players very decent players but either our clubs and we had some great clubs we had Saint-Etienne we had Marseille with Josip Skobla Roger Magnusson um, Bernard Bosquet and the clubs well Saint-Etienne was doing few things in Europe but the French national team didn't seem to be able to capitalize on that even though um, nine of the outfield, none of the players, I think, of Saint-Étienne at that time uh, were French, members of the national team. And so, slowly, um, some kind of reform was put in place, exactly the same way that a reform was put in place after the Platini generation has disappeared with Claire Fontaine and so forth, leading to 1998 and 2000. So, Hidalgo, yes, was part of, of, was one of the people responsible for that. His predecessors, Georges Boulogne, uh, so derided at the time, and Stefan Kovac were also responsible. But of course, you can't do that without an exceptional crop of players. And amongst those, as we seem to have every time the French team does something, a truly world-class player in the in the person of Michel Platini, just as we had Coppa and Fontaine in '58, just as we had Zidane in in 1998, and Thierry Henry as well in 2000. So that the Platini was the catalyst. There's no doubt about that. And so, without any further ado, we bring you La Renaissance by Philippe Auclair. Even in times of victory, there always was an air of world weariness about Michel Hidalgo. Not that the kind, gentle, unassuming Hidalgo appeared to suffer the existential torments of a Sartrean anti-hero. He looked more like a puppy whose favourite toy had been taken away for reasons it could not comprehend. You wondered... Could French football be shaken up at long last by the man with the moon-shaped face, the benign PE teacher with the slow, monotonous delivery, the manager with an almost complete lack of managerial experience at any level? Surely not. His predecessor, the Romanian Stefan Kovacs, had gravitas, a fine sense of humour too, 
allure and a formidable CV. Seven major trophies, including two European Cups with Ajax, the second of which had been won just before he accepted the French FA's proposal to replace the unpopular Georges Boulogne at the helm of Les Bleus. Kovac, in whom so much hope had been placed, had failed in as much as he'd failed to produce a miracle when everyone agreed a miracle was called for. France was so keen to appoint him that the French Foreign Office held secret negotiations with Nikolai Ceausescu's government to secure the permit that would enable Kovac to work abroad, which the Romanian authorities initially wanted to revoke so that he could take care of their own national team. The then Prime Minister and future President Jacques Chirac went as far as to speak of a victory for French diplomacy when a deal was struck, which included the payment, in dollars not francs, of monthly compensation to the Romanian Football Federation. France, with one win in six matches against fairly moderate opposition, had missed out on qualification for the 1976 European Championship, just as they had missed out on every single international competition since the 1966 World Cup. Ah well, better next time. Or maybe not. Hidalgo had been a player of some distinction with Stade de Reims and Monaco, winning the double with the Monegasques in 1963, but had shown close to no interest in a coaching career until he was asked to serve as Kovacs' assistant. He'd had a one-year stint with the minuscule Rapid Omnisport de Montan in 1968, of which nothing is remembered, and that was that. It seemed absurd that a man with such a modest pedigree could achieve more than a European Cup winner had. Had Kovac not said that, provided French football rebuilt its amateurish structure from top to bottom, it would take eight or ten years to assemble a decent competitive national side? But miracles do happen. On the 16th of November 1977, a gorgeous long-distance strike by the 22-year-old Michel Platini, his sixth in 12 games for France, gave Hidalgo's ultra-attacking team a two-goal cushion against Bulgaria in their decisive qualifier for the 1978 World Cup. France lined up in a 4-2-1-3, with Platini positioned just behind the centre-forward Bernard Lacombe and Didier Cisse and Dominic Rocheteau on the wings. As for purely defensive midfielders, there were none. Dominique Bartonnet, a dynamic box-to-box ball winner, was partnered by Jean-Marc Guillou, a true number 10, reinvented as what we'd call a deep-lying playmaker today. The Bulgarians, who only needed a draw to earn their passage to Argentina, scored late in the game. But France held on, just, adding a third goal in the dying seconds through the substitute Christian Dalger, signalling the end of 12 years of penance, to quote from L'Equipe's front page the day following that cathartic victory. Even then, Hidalgo cut an odd, downbeat figure, as if he didn't quite belong in a world of winners, as if his team did not either. Twenty-four hours after being held aloft in triumph on his players' shoulders in an ecstatic, disbelieving Parc des Princes, as the special guest of France's most popular French sports TV programme, Hidalgo gave an interview which was especially remarkable for its lugubriousness. We're too naive, he sighed, referring to a string of missed chances in the first 45 minutes of the game. When his questioner, the equally lugubrious Pierre Cagnoni, made the suggestion that France was suffering from a dearth of new talent, Hidalgo nodded in assent, as if he wished to present his apologies in advance. France had qualified, which was unexpected and wonderful, but there it would end. France had far too far to go to be considered contenders. 
strange. That same year, in 1977, they had given West Germany their first taste of defeat since winning the World Cup three years previously. France had also held Argentina and Brazil to deserve draws in the Bombonera and the Maracanã. Somehow that didn't seem to count. Our lack of confidence ran so deep that success could only be seen as a cruel trick played by the gods. We were the world champions of friendlies. We froze when the competitive heat was on. Then we melted. True to type, France's 1978 World Cup campaign was a shambles. The tone was set before the actual tournament by a tragicomic episode which must rank among the most bizarre in the history of the competition. On the morning of May 23rd, driving with his wife to Bordeaux, 24 hours before the team was scheduled to leave France on a Concorde flight, Michel Hidalgo was the victim of a kidnapping attempt, which he described with such preternatural calm that you had to wonder whether the incident had really occurred or was just a figment of his imagination. I was asked to step out of the car and to follow a man who was holding a handgun to a small stretch of woodland about 50 metres from the car. At the same time, another man took my place at the wheel next to my wife to do I don't know what with my car. I reacted after we'd walked 15 or 20 metres because I felt the gun in my back and thought I only had a short time left to live. I grabbed the muzzle of the gun and managed to make the man drop it on the ground and to pick it up before him. When he saw that, he ran away, and they drove off in their car. I'd asked them, but what do you want? What do you want? All they said was, no, no, let's have a walk in the woodland. In this type of situation, you wonder, what has sport to do with this? I couldn't see the point of going to Argentina any more. The great joy of November the 16th had been erased in one fell swoop. I thought of my family and told myself, it isn't worth it. Then sport took over, and the thought that I'd be with the players, and I believe that we have to carry on with our pacifist mission to unite rather than to divide. Hidalgo was far closer to his players than was customary among French managers of his generation, and was certainly the first France national team selector to refer to them publicly by using their first names. Back in 1978, this was construed in some circles as another proof that the trade unionist and son of a Spanish refugee who'd fled the civil war was en rouge. A few hours later, an anonymous caller contacted a state television channel claiming that the objective of the botched attack had been, quote, to expose the hypocritical complicity of the French government who supplies weapons to Argentina. The identity of the culprits remains a mystery to this day, although the suspicion quickly fell on Coba, a group of left-wing militants who'd convinced 150,000 people, the communist trinity of Jean-Paul Sartre, Louis Aragon and Simon Signoret among them, to sign a petition calling for the boycott of the Coupe du Monde des Généraux. Football can't be played next to torture centres, was one of their slogans. A significant proportion of French public opinion, though far from a majority, a poll conducted just before Hidalgo's misadventure found that 65% of the respondents supported France's presence in Argentina, viewed this World Cup as a means to prop up the regime of General Videla and his cohort of murderers. Some former footballers, Just Fontaine for example, had expressed their discomfort. Of the current crop, Dominique Rocheteau, the Green Angel known for his left-leaning sympathies, as well as for his flowing locks and darting runs on the right wing, jersey floating loosely around his hips, was rumoured to support the idea of a boycott, 
but ultimately kept his counsel and boarded the plane to Buenos Aires. This hadn't been the most auspicious of beginnings for the French. It didn't get much better once they got to Argentina. Look at images of their opening game, a 2-1 defeat against Italy on June second in Mar del Plata. Look closely. Look at their boots. The three white stripes of France's official kit supplier have disappeared. The reason is that Platini and his teammates had painted them black before kick-off, following a dispute about match bonuses with Adidas. These bonuses were judged far too low by the players, who nominated Marius Trezor to negotiate a new deal with the German firm's representative, former France international goalkeeper François Remetti. Adidas had paid the equivalent of £150 per man per game before the tournament, an amount that had risen afterwards by £1.50, an hour's labour at the rate of the minimum wage in France at the time, then £10, which the footballers deemed too modest. The talks, which had started three days before the inaugural match of France's campaign, collapsed only a few hours before the team lined up for La Marseillaise in the Estadio José Maria Minella. In truth, nobody, neither the TV or radio commentators nor their audiences back in France, had noticed the stripeless boots. The matter would have been laid to rest quietly if France's team doctor, Monsieur Vriac, trying to explain the defeat against the Italians, when Bernard Lacombe had opened the scoring within 37 seconds of kick-off, had not spilled the story to a reporter. It didn't go down too well with the fans at home. France's brief stay in Argentina was bookended by another farcical episode, which demonstrated that Kovacs was right to express his doubts about the professionalism of the French Federation. FIFA had requested Les Bleus to play in blue for the final game of the competition, their opponent Hungary donning white jerseys for what was a farewell to Argentina for them too. France's kitman, Henri Patrel, failed to read FIFA's pre-match instructions with the attention they merited. As a result, Hidalgo's team exited their dressing room clad in a kit the same colour as that of the Hungarians. As Patrel had also forgotten his second set of strips at the squad's hotel, the game's referee, the Brazilian, Arnaldo César Coelho, had no choice but to delay kick-off until France had come up with replacement jerseys. Forty minutes went by before a solution was found. A local club, Atletico Kimberley, loaned a set of green and white striped shirts to the French, some of whom found them a difficult fit. Those jerseys were normally worn by Kimberley's under-19 team. The game was far less embarrassing than the comedy of errors which had preceded it, ending 3-1 in favour of France. This win over Hungary also marked the first, and to this day only occasion, when a team has fielded three different goalkeepers in three successive games at the World Cup. Jean-Claude Bertrand Deman, Dominique Baratelli, who replaced the injured Bertrand Deman in France's second match, and Dominique Dropsy. Victor and victim had had no chance of progressing to the second phase of the tournament, but that didn't make it as inconsequential a result as might be thought. It had been nearly 20 years since France had last won a game in the finals of a World Cup, or a European Championship for that matter, when West Germany were beaten 6-3 in the third-place playoff in 1958. Small mercies? No, far more than that. Shambolic as it had been, this World Cup had not just given Hidalgo's young team the experience of a major tournament. They went home with the conviction that they were not fated to satisfy themselves with the roles of extras, 
when called on a bigger stage. That conviction, which their supporters shared, rested on one factor, one game, the most disappointing, the most encouraging of the three they had played there, even if it signalled the end of their World Cup campaign. On June 6th, a clearly anxious Argentina won a highly controversial encounter by two goals to one in front of 77,216 spectators who'd started heckling their own team before half-time. To see off the French, which was indispensable for their progress, they'd had to rely on the award of a dubious penalty for an accidental handball by Trésor and the refusal of the referee, Jean Dubach, to punish Leopold Luque when he clearly bundled Didier Cisse over inside the Argentinian box. France, with Platini at the heart of every move, showed more skill, more heart, more daring and more imagination than the future world champions. Cisse and Rocheteau waltzed on the wings. Trésor galloped forward majestically. Even Maxime Bossis, a man not blessed with the most graceful of physiques, eluded tackles with the drop of the shoulder. Every pass, it seems, was brushed with the outside of the foot, making fun of a dreadful surface. This, at least, was how we saw it at home. Watching the game again 36 years later, it is clear that we were not deluded. It had been an exceptional performance in a match of exceptional technical quality, the like of which is seen very rarely in the contemporary international football. The nervousness we'd all felt through the 3-1 win over Bulgaria seven months earlier had vanished. In France's first game in Argentina, despite Lacombe's early strike, the Italian comeback had been accepted with grim resignation. Les Bleus had last beaten the Azzurri in August 1920. To us, losing had become more than a habit, a strand in our DNA. But something shifted that evening in the Estadio Monumental. We started to believe in ourselves. We deserved better. We were angry, and that anger felt good. It intensified when a number of stories started to circulate. Argentinian players were said to have popped mysterious blue pills before kickoff. To the astonishment of a FIFA official, one of these players returned drugs test results which could only be those of a pregnant woman, whereas a prominent name of that squad had been excused the post-match test despite the protestations of the French camp. Luque was spotted winking at the referee after Cisse's appeal for a penalty had been waved away. Malicious or not, these stories were ultimately footnotes to a far more significant one, however. There was no dearth of new talent in French football, quite the opposite. Seven of the players who started the game in Buenos Aires took part in Sevilla 1982, the 3-3 draw with Germany which gained an unequalled status in French football mythology. Those seven were Maxime Bossis, Marius Trésor, Michel Platini, Dominique Rocheteau, Didier Cisse, Patrick Battiston and Christian Lopez. Six of them still featured in the squad which won France's first major international trophy, the 1984 European Championship. The time had come to look beyond a narrative of repeated failure and self-loathing. France had also found their style, even if it was more of a rediscovery of the principle Jean Batteux had instilled in the class of 1958, who'd unfortunately turned out to be the result of the coming together of a unique generation of players with a unique manager, rather than the harbinger of things to come. The national team suffered from a physical deficit, a phrase repeated ad nauseum in the reports of the time, we now knew that this could be compensated by technical excellence and playing ambition. Who dares does not necessarily win, but there are worse places to start from. And 1978 was that start. 
despite the kidnapping attempt, the blacked-out boots and the wrong set of shirts, despite the elimination and the raging at the injustice of it all, and despite ourselves, who'd finally found hope when we did not expect it. In defeat, for a change. That was La Renaissance by Philippe Auclair, first published in issue 14 in September 2014. Also in issue 14, Ben Littleton asks why the Dutch can't win penalty shootouts, Elko Born on Johan Cruyff, Ajax and the struggle for the soul of Dutch football, John Harding on how Bolton's Jack Slater smashed class barriers to become football's first millionaire, and our greatest games feature looks back to Russia 1, Ukraine 1, and the Euro 2000 qualifier at the Luzhniki Stadium in October 1999. Issue 14, like all issues of the Blizzard, is available on a pay-what-you-like basis at theblizzard.co.uk. You can download digital editions for as little as a penny apiece, while print editions start at just £6 plus postage and packing. Don't forget that subscription options are available, and you can also find us on the Kindle and Google Play stores. If you have any comments, feedback or suggestions about these podcasts, you can email us podcast at theblizzard.co.uk or find us on Twitter at blizzard, B-L-Z-Z-R-D. <laughs>